Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the truth, and it is a staggering truth, that your throne, that throne which is rightly one of majesty and glory and dominion and authority and holiness and justice, that same throne is now a throne of grace. So that we who are sinners can draw near to you, can draw near to that throne where you reign and cast ourselves before you and know that we shall not be cast out. Throne of grace. We behold that throne and we behold the high priest in whom that grace has been revealed. And so it is our prayer now in his name and for his sake, for his glory among us and in the world, that you would bless to our minds and hearts and lives the reading and the preaching of your word. That word which is full of holiness and justice and truth and grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do turn again now to God's Word, and we do turn again to 2 Samuel, a few verses into chapter 3. Last week, we can get our bearings here, quick review. Last week, we covered the bulk of chapter 2 and then on into chapter 3 here in 2 Samuel. And what we saw last week was the outbreak of a kind of civil war. What we saw last week was the man who'd been the commander of Saul's army, Abner. Abner spearheaded a rival claim to the throne of Israel after Saul's death. The tribe of Judah, David's own tribe, they had previously crowned David as their king. So it's gone that far. But remember what we saw last week. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Maenaim, and he made him king. Made him king, we were told, over all Israel. So it's true, at this point in the story, in a sense, David has turned the page to a new chapter. David has left behind some of his old troubles and trials, and yet, lo and behold, what does he find on the next page? What does he discover in the next chapter? But now new troubles that he's going to have to deal with, nothing less than the outbreak of civil war. And yet, it's still a time when God's good to David. Remember, we saw that as well. David's fortunes were rising. David's household was growing, even at a time when he's going to have to face down these new tests and trials. Even in a chapter like that, for David, God was good. And that same God is still good to us. So that's what we saw last week. That's what brings us to this week. Once again, we're going to pick up where we left off. That means picking up at chapter 3, verse 6. And once again this week, I'm going to exercise my preacher's prerogative to ignore the chapter divisions that we have on the pages in our Bibles. We're going to pick up a few verses into chapter 3, and then we're going to keep going a few verses into chapter 5. 
I, I do feel like I'm violating some kind of literary feng shui to be picking these passages that sit just a little bit off the chapter divisions, like the rug on the floor that's just a little bit off-center. Hopefully this won't make any of you squirm to begin in chapter 3 and to keep going a little bit into chapter 5. But remember, there's nothing divinely inspired about the chapter divisions. We're free to block off sections in the story in different places if it seems to make sense, if it seems to be valuable. And this morning, for our purposes, I think it is. Spoiler alert, by the time we get to the end of our passage here this morning, David's going to be reigning over all Israel. That is where we're headed. But there's a whole lot of drama and messiness and awfulness along the way before we get there. And that itself is instructive. That itself is a reminder that God's pleased to work that way sometimes, oftentimes. God's going to bring his purposes to pass, no question. It's not like there's any doubt about that. But he'll bring them to pass in his own way. And sometimes that does entail a whole lot of drama and messiness and awfulness along the way. Well, David, getting to the point that he's finally reigning over all Israel, is an instance of that. It's an illustration of that truth about God's way of working. So let me start reading for us. Chapter 3, verse 6, as has been our custom Sunday after Sunday, I'll pause a few places along the way, explain a few things as I read. Chapter 3, verse 6. While there was war between the household of Saul and the household of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So that's the circumstance that sets things in motion this morning. That's the episode that gets Abner so fired up that he determines that he's done with this rebellion against David. Ishbosheth basically accuses Abner of plotting some kind of coup, accuses him of taking steps in the direction of making himself to be the leading man of the kingdom. And for Abner, that's too much, that accusation. That's what gets him so fired up that he has a pretty radical change of mind. Now, it certainly could be That even prior to this episode, Abner was already harboring some doubts about this rival claim to the throne 
that he had instigated, especially since it's not going well and it's getting worse for the house of Saul. Remember what we saw last week at the beginning of the chapter. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. That was verse 1. Well, Abner's no dummy. He can read the writing on the wall. This is a man who's an experienced commander. In any case, on the face of it, what we've got here so far, this is the circumstance that sets things in motion. In effect, Abner says back to Ishbosheth, I've been the real power here all along, and you know it. He's saying, I could have handed you over any time I wanted to. I could have brought this whole thing to an end whenever I wanted. Well, guess what? Now I'm going to. I'm done with this. This ends now. Abner had been the kingmaker. Now he's about to become the king unmaker. So look how he proceeds. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bride price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. That, that takes us back to a storyline that we saw unfold back in 1 Samuel. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish, but her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. Remember, by the way, Benjamin is the tribe of Saul's house. That's why Benjamin figures so prominently in all of this. Judah is David's tribe. That's why Judah figures so prominently on David's side. But what Abner says there to the leaders of the people of Israel sheds some very interesting light. Based upon what he says to them there and the appeal that he makes to them, the appeal to acknowledge David at last, it could be that the people of Israel were already thinking this rival claim is doomed. We don't want Ishbosheth anymore. We want David. In other words, it could be, based upon the way Abner pitches this to them, it looks like Abner is simply orchestrating something that a whole lot of people had already gotten to the point of wanting anyway. So that's the appeal that he makes to the leaders of Israel. And then verse 20, look at verse 20 now. He has his meeting with David. Remember, David had said, I'll meet you on one condition. The condition has been satisfied. Now the meeting takes place. 
between David and Abner, a moment of some drama. Verse 20, when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So notice, David has no intention of exacting revenge for what Abner had done in standing up this rival claim to the throne. David's not going to go there. He sends Abner away in peace. Joab is a different story. Look at verse 22. And remember from last Sunday, Abner, the one that David has just sent away in peace, Abner's the one who killed Joab's brother. And remember, Abner didn't kill him out of bloodlust. If anything, he wanted to avoid it. But still it's true. Abner's the one who killed Joab's brother. And Joab remembers. So look at verse 22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. So that's Joab's way of saying to David, Abner cannot be trusted. Joab's saying, Abner came here claiming to have come in peace. But he didn't mean it. It was all a ruse. And then Joab resorts to a ruse of his own. Look at verse 26, 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it, and when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahal, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Notice Abishai, the other brother, is linked there with what Joab has done. Verse 31, then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept 
And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Remember, the sons of Zeruiah are Joab and Abishai, and previously their brother Asahel too. So that's how David responds to this. This gets back to something we were saying a few weeks back. This is another one of those moments when eyes are on David. People are watching David. They're watching him to gauge how he responds to this. Because the way he responds to it will speak volumes to them about his character. The way he responds to it will make it clear to the people whether or not their new man or their new king is a man of integrity. It'll make it clear to them whether or not he acted wickedly in order to grab power rather than waiting patiently on the purposes of God. And with their eyes on him, they can see That no, this is not a man who acted wickedly to grab power. And so they see that in David. No wonder then that they're pleased with what they see. They're satisfied with the way he has handled this. Let's keep going into chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimen, a man of, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there to this day. The next verse, verse 4, appears to be a bit of an aside. This next verse, verse 4, will pay off as the story goes on in 2 Samuel. But for now, notice it, mark it, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Verse 4, a bit of an aside, but shedding a little bit more light here on the house of Saul and where things stand with this house, now that Saul's dead and Jonathan's dead and Abner's dead too. 
But then verse 5, we're back to the story that's unfolding here in chapter 4. Look at verse 5. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethites, Rechab and Baanah, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and he thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. And so Ishbosheth meets his end, as do the two men who killed him and who read David wrongly thinking that David would be pleased with it. Once again, he wasn't. But once again, that's just the kind of response that would have been pleasing for the people whose eyes were on this King David. And then finally, a few verses into chapter 5. Take a look at chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. A little bit of foreshadowing there, the reference to Jerusalem. We'll get there. David will get there, Lord willing, next Sunday. So that's what unfolds here in our passage this morning, all the way from just about the beginning of chapter 3 to a few verses into chapter 5. So we're now at the point when David's reigning over all Israel. But it definitely took some twists and turns and drama and death before we got there. So there's our story. What do we learn from it? This narrative that's unfolded, chapters 3 and 4 and on into 5, what lessons... And we glean from this. Well, again, this morning, I want to highlight two of them. 
two lessons, two truths that we can glean from what we've seen. The first of them is this. Opposition to the Lord's anointed one does not end well. Opposition to the Lord's anointed one does not end well. The way this ends for Ishbosheth and his cause, if we can even put it that way. The way this rebellion falls apart and his own courage leaves him when Abner does. And then even more so when Abner dies. And then the pitiful way that Ishbosheth meets his own end. This is what we might call a biblical cautionary tale. Does not end well when you set yourself up against the one who's the anointed of God. And by that I mean more specifically the anointed of God whom God himself intends to exalt. It's a biblical cautionary tale that we can learn from Ishbosheth and his cause and what came of it. Now, just to be clear, just to be fair, it's not like everybody who was on Ishbosheth's side was actually thinking to himself, I shall now rise up against God and his anointed. In other words, it's not like it would have been crystal clear to everybody at the time that it was the purpose of God that David reign, so that it was self-conscious rebellion against God on everybody's part to take up arms against David. We've always got to be careful when it comes to the conclusions that we come to about what's in people's hearts and minds and motivation. But still, even saying that, Even allowing for that, even allowing for a certain messiness in real life, including the real life drama that's here. Even saying that, we can still also say that this effort to claim the throne of Israel for Ishbosheth, son of Saul, it was always going to end in failure. Whether in spectacular collapse, or some kind of pitiful petering out, or something in between, or some combination of the two. This was always going to end in failure. And that's because it was the purpose of God that David reigned. This was never going to succeed. And the reason why this is a biblical cautionary tale that still resonates today is that that truth is preeminently true today in Jesus Christ. Remember, that's what the title Christ means. It means the anointed one. Jesus has been anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. He is the Christ of God. This one who's the son of David. He's the Christ of God. Well then, if you oppose Jesus, If you oppose his cause, if you oppose his truth, and if you stay there without turning from that opposition, without relenting and repenting, then it's not going to end well for you. To put it bluntly, for the person who opposes the kingship of King Jesus by refusing the call to believe in him, 
the summons to repent and bend the knee before him. Life is going to end in judgment. That opposition to Jesus is a doomed cause. For me, it brings to mind something we read in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. At this point, the Christian church is in a sense a fledgling new movement in Jerusalem. And the leaders in Jerusalem are trying to figure out what to do about it. How harshly, how strictly to come down against it. And in that council of leaders in Jerusalem, the Jewish leadership... One of them stands up and says this, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, that is, these Christians. He says, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That's Acts chapter 5. And what he says there in that speech as a maybe or a might be, we can say today as an absolutely, definitely, not just maybe, but definitely, truly, the Christian gospel is of God. And so the Christian church, no longer a mere fledgling movement, is of God. And that's because Jesus of Nazareth is the anointed of God. He is the Christ. And so there's no overthrowing him. There's no holding out on him and his rightful reign that's going to end well. And so I I do want to say this this morning to anyone who's, um, who's joined us today, whether here in the hall or out there in Facebook land, I do want to say this to anyone who's joined us this morning who has not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. I realize this is a hard word, but it's still a word that you need to hear. If you have not yet come to faith in Christ, it can be fairly said about you that as things stand right now, you remain in a place of opposition to the Lord's anointed one. If you haven't yet come to faith in Christ, in one way or another, for one reason or another, you're holding out on Christ, which is, in effect, to refuse his summons to acknowledge his kingship. It's to hold out against his rightful rule, his rightful rule over you. And I realize you may not see it that way this morning. It may not feel that way to you as things stand right now. But that is your underlying spiritual reality. And the point is, that is not a safe place to be. That's not a good place to be. And so I do want to say to you this morning, and and I know maybe you've heard this before in a sermon or from a Christian friend or family member, don't let it stay this way. It doesn't have to end that way. There is another way. 
And it is the way of turning back to God by trusting in the one who is the Christ. That's the way. That's the summons. And again, maybe, maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you haven't. Whether you have or haven't, I'm going to talk about it. Whether today after the service or during the week over the phone or over a coffee, just don't let it stay this way. Because it doesn't have to. Don't stay in the position of opposing God's king for God's people. So that's the first of our two lessons that I wanted us to learn and consider together this morning. Here's the second one, the second of two. And I suppose this one is the positive flip side of the first one. The first one was opposition to the Lord's anointed doesn't end well. Here's the second one. God's purpose is that his one king rule over his one people. God's purpose is that his one king rule over his one people. And here's what I mean. Here's why I say that given the storyline we've seen unfold this morning. Remember, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, the tribe of Judah... David's own tribe, that one tribe way down in the south, they made David their king, the tribe of Judah. That was way back at the beginning of chapter 2. David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. That was way back in chapter 2. Now here's the question. Shouldn't that have been enough? To put it more pointedly, shouldn't that have been enough for God, whose servant David was? I mean, think about it. At the beginning of chapter 2, the Lord's anointed one, David, is reigning over his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. And it's from that tribe that the Savior will come. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. So we can say, shouldn't shouldn't that have been enough? The way things were there at the beginning of chapter 2, David acknowledged by his own tribe. And the answer is no. It wasn't enough. And that's because God's purpose all along was that his one king rule over his one people. His one people Israel from Dan to Beersheba, in other words, from top to bottom, his one people Israel, all 12 tribes, not just Judah, God wanted David over all of them as one people. And and here again, to, to feel the force of this, to appreciate this, it's good for us to stop and think how this points us forward to Jesus Christ. Yes, it was true in David's case. God's purpose was that his one King David rule over his one people Israel. But above all, now for us, we can see with the eyes of faith, it's true in Christ. God's purpose is that his one King Jesus rule over his one redeemed people, which is the church universal throughout the world and throughout time. 
And God won't be done. History won't have reached its conclusion until that's realized. Until God's one king is ruling over the whole of that one church. In other words, until everyone's brought into that kingdom whom God chose to be brought into it. Until that happens, until that day, until that last day, God won't be done. Christ will not be done building his church. For me, it brought to mind Ephesians 2. That's why I made it our first scripture reading in our service this morning. Where Paul talks about how Jesus is our peace who has made us both one. Paul talking about Jews and Gentiles brought together as the one people of God. That's just it. God's one people. God's one church. The church universal. While Jesus died in order to gain that one people for God. And therefore history will not have reached its conclusion until he's reigning over that one people. For me it also brought to mind what Jesus himself says in John 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. This is John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's Jesus in John 10. God won't be done. Until that one flock, the whole flock, is under the care of their one shepherd king. And Jesus, who is that shepherd king, will not be satisfied until it's true. And one day it will be. In the end, it will be. And so I want to to say to all of us today, who know and love our King Jesus, I know very well, I know in my own experience, in my own Heart, it can be disheartening to look at the fortunes of the church here in our country and around the world, whether it's divisions within the church or declining numbers or declining influence or outright persecution, whatever it might be. It can be disheartening to look out and take all of that in. And we can even start to wonder, Shepherd King Jesus, why don't you come back right now? Come back right now. Come back yesterday, please. And put an end to all this. All this drama and messiness and awfulness. Well, here's a word for us this morning that reassures us. A word that steadies us. A word that helps us to be patient. It is the purpose of God that the whole of his one chosen flock be brought in and united under the scepter of his one shepherd king Jesus. Isn't that glorious? And history won't have reached its conclusion until that has come to pass. So take heart, Christian. Take heart, weary soldier. In the army of shepherd King Jesus. A day is going to come when we see that purpose of God realized.
Take heart, Christian. God's getting us there to that day of one church under one king. God's getting us there, even when it's hard to see it. Even it feels like it, if it feels like it's taking a long time. God's getting us there, and it'll be worth it. It'll be so worth it in the end. So let us press on. And let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for your one Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ of God, the anointed one of God. We thank you for your rescuing grace that you have worked in our lives so that we have come to Christ by faith, bending the knee before him. So you have rescued us from a place of great peril and brought us into safety. It's our prayer that the message of that gospel would ring out from this pulpit, from this church, from our lives in the world that others might be brought into. For in Christ is the only safe place to be. And at the same time, we thank you for the sure promise that your purpose will be realized. Your one people, your one flock, brought in and united in Jesus and under Jesus. And it's happening. And we're a part of it. And we say hallelujah and amen.